thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. No apparent or claimed evidence in any field, including history and chronology, I'm quoting now, can be valid if it contradicts the scriptural record. This is one of the protocols of the Creation Museum in Kentucky in the United States, run by Answers in Genesis. AIG is that acronym. The museum demonstrates that the Earth was created in six 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. It reminds me of Archbishop Usher, who in the 17th century identified the beginning of the world at 6 o'clock on the 22nd of October, 4004 BC. AIG have also built an associated visitor attraction called Ark Encounter, a theme park with a full-size replica of Noah's Ark at its centre, and visitor numbers are high. Research from the Pew Trust has revealed that 35% of Americans believe that evolution did not take place. But here we are, on Naked Reflections, taking a long view of evolution. The Naked Scientist had a Q&A on the subject recently, and here's Chris Smith with some thoughts about how genetics and evolution might work together. One thing maybe we could raise here is that the genetic code is universal, isn't it? So the genetic code that runs in, say, a jellyfish also works in a human. So if I took a jellyfish gene and put that into a human, a human cell would understand that genetic message and make the jellyfish gene. People have made glowing green mice, for example, doing that, haven't they? So is it not theoretically possible that given jellyfish predate dinosaurs in evolutionary terms, dinosaur genes, if we could get them, you could insert them into a human cell. It would understand them, but whether it would make anything useful, that's a different question. With me to discuss the question of evolution are Dr. Charlotte Kensington, a fellow of St. Edmund's College here in Cambridge, Dr. Tobias Muller, a research fellow at the Wolf Institute, and Dr. Alexander Massman from the Faculty of Divinity here in Cambridge. Now, Charlotte, I know you're a paleobiologist. Perhaps tell us a little bit about that and how that links into this question of evolution and the dinosaurs and so on. So, yeah, so I'm a paleobiologist, which means that I look at fossils all day. And... So for me, fossils give us a glimpse into the past that we can't get through any other means. So it gives us the preserved remains of animals that were alive at some point and are now extinct. And so not just animals, of course, plants, fungi, all sorts of things. And they tie in really well with genetics. So they allow us... So there's something called the molecular clock, which is a predictable rate at which genes evolve. And so the only way that you can constrain that clock is with fossil data. Otherwise, you know, you you need something else to support the, the models that you have. And why do you think so many people 
not just in the United States, find it difficult to accept this incredibly long history of evolution. I mean, you're going back how many millions of years? So the fossils that I look at are about 560 million years old. So to put that in context, dinosaurs went extinct about 65 million years ago. So it's a huge period of time, but many of us do find it difficult to accept that. Why? Why? I think it's it's just very, very difficult to envisage. And particularly if you think about um, the way that our Earth is today and try and imagine it in a very, very different place with dinosaurs running around or even when there was nothing on land, when land was just you know a sea of sand and rock. I think that's very difficult to imagine. It's appealing, but it's difficult. In the museum, there is an image, um, AIG, of children petting dinosaurs. Very beautiful, very different from Jurassic Park, Alexander. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, that's, of course, in part, it's exciting and entertaining, perhaps. So I could imagine that would be a factor. Um, maybe we wouldn't even need to assume that everybody who visits the museum denies evolution. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, why is it that people have such a difficult time accepting evolution? I think one of the more interesting factors would be the question, um, how about human dignity, the special status of humans. So sometimes there are slightly provocative evolutionary thinkers who say, well, humans are just animals. We can breed them the way we breed animals. And that's what's been going on for millions of years. Um, so is that actually a valid critique of evolution? I don't think it is. How do we handle the literal interpretations of some of our scriptural narratives of creation? That's a funny question, because I don't think literalists really are looking literally at the text. So if you take one of the very prominent creation stories, Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, um, you would read how first God creates light, and then a couple days later, <laughs> uh, God creates the sun. And of course, these authors knew that the sun is our source of light. Perhaps there's the moon as well, but that's created even later. So um, there's always or already a hint in these um, traditions uh, that a little more is, something, uh, is going on, and you never have it all sewn up. Um, so I think uh, what we call literalism is an unfortunate attempt to sort of insulate yourself from, from the living tradition that could bring up new questions. And I guess the problem is also that literalism carries with it a certain claim to the real truth, like the real word of God. And the argument often would be, but wait, do you think actually what's in the Bible is wrong? Like certain, certain, and that, of course, as a believing uh, person is very hard to, uh, um, to, to claim. So I think um, it is important to, um, as you say, uh, um, Remember that any reading of a text is necessarily a interpretation, it is a way of reading it. And even the so-called literalists and even those that claim um, that there's only one meaning, um, um, this is only one interpretation and it cannot be otherwise. And uh, um, every scholar of text, of literature, um, and most scholars of religion actually, I think nowadays, agree that um, what we need to do is interpret them. And that, of course, then um, raises the question of where, where are we coming from, what are our interests, and why do we think this particular version is true? Personally, I think that evolution has brought us to a vantage point where our social instincts resonate with a wider theory, a theory that 
isn't determined by the evolutionary fact but we, that we hit upon and that just makes really good sense with our evolutionary heritage. So there is a really strong evolutionary benefit to altruism, which is the word that we use for um, to describe taking care of people, taking care of your neighbour. And it's that if you're if the goal of evolution, if you like, is to try and make sure that your genes survive, that they pass on, then if you take care of somebody else who has the same genes as you or is likely to have some of the same genes, then there's more of a chance that those genes will make it forwards. And there's also, um, with some animals, there's a kind of quid pro quo. So it's altruism with the expect of I'll take care of you and then when I need it, you take care of me. So there is a strong very simple evolutionary benefit to that. Right. And then part of the interesting thing is, so we don't have to play off niceness, so to speak, in evolution against competition. So competition still plays a role, I think, in evolution. Um, but for example, um, conflict is bound to arise in a chimpanzee population. And that's why even chimpanzees take care not to uh, let violence erupt. So a leading chimp would sort of um, settle conflicts like that. Um, so it's it's not um, it's either niceness in evolution or nature red in tooth and claw. It's a really fascinating subject. And it's interesting also what kind of different um, elements or ways of uh, dealing with these conflicts have been found. Um, if I'm not mistaken, bonobos in particular, actually, I think use a lot of kind of physical affection and love and, and even actually having sex to kind of release tensions within a group. So there seems to be also different models of how uh, yeah, certain societies, animal societies deal with that, like either the more hierarchical model, if you want, or kind of a more yeah, horizontal, um, yeah, mutually exchange of, uh, of physical intimacy model. <laughs> I'd like to return to the question of human dignity. Uh, I think what evolution tells us and what's changed about our understanding of human dignity. The um, understanding of evolution has changed. It's not entirely clear how Darwin thought of it himself all the time. But um, one of the legacies certainly was um, social Darwinism, where people said, um, well, let's just um, regard um, society the way we would regard some animal population and let those pressures and the competition play itself out. Um, I don't think Darwin was of that persuasion. There, he sometimes wrote things that would speak against it. Um, but as we just said, um, it is natural. It, it seems to be in our mentality, in our makeup also to care for our neighbor. Um, so it would be a really one-sided view of evolution simply to pit one animal against the other. And I think at the end of the day, it is a, also a political interpretation, which we see in how Darwin's theory has been taken up. Because on the one hand, you can make social Darwinistic arguments um, for kind of laissez-faire state capitalism and competition, um, and thereby um, actually morally condoning as well that uh, the strongest and the fittest actually gain more wealth and status. On the other hand, for instance, uh, the political theorist uh, Peter 
Kropotkin said, um, actually, through cooperation, you might get a advantage in the struggle for survival. So the fittest in the Dominion sense, and as you said, Darwin is actually open to that, might very well be those that actually collaborate, that actually create very inclusive and more um, egalitarian um, systems of support. So at the end of the day, um, it also very much depends on the political ideologies that one uh, is, is coming from as well. I wonder if we could bring it back, yes, Charlotte, to 650 million years ago, if you yeah. could... Uh, and so, if I, if I could, so that's, a, that's a really good point, and that's a really interesting way of, of phrasing it. And I think that's part of where the difficulty that people have with accepting evolution comes in. So evolution is a fact. You can watch it. You can detect it in the fossil record. You can um, study it in plants or in model systems of flies. But I think the difficulty is the theory of natural selection, and it's this survival of the fittest, and that really conjures up this image of nature red in tooth and claw of people fighting and of um, or of animals fighting and then of the fittest being the strongest or the biggest but there there absolutely is this um, potential for the fittest being those who are better able to cooperate to share resources and to um, do something like raise children collectively which is a much better use of resources than competing to um, you know, kill off your neighbor's offspring for instance. Tobias, you've been researching strictly orthodox religious communities across different faiths. And I mentioned the museum, of course, at the beginning, which represents one aspect, if you like, of, of strictly orthodox or one, one part of it. But what have you learned in terms of those communities and their attitudes towards questions of evolution and, you know, dinosaurs 65 million years old and, and, uh, and so on? So I would say the question of evolution certainly is one of the most heatedly debated questions um, among religious groups, and this goes from, um, I'd say, uh, yeah, very strictly observant orthodox groups to even more liberal groups, kind of the question, how does religion and faith uh, um, relate to science? I believe the main problem here is that evolutionary theory, um, as they see it, poses a question or a challenge to where does truth come from and particularly an explanation of something that many religions, particularly the Abrahamic faiths, have a very clear record in their scriptures. So there is a story of um, creation in the Holy Scriptures. So if there is an account that explains or tells us a story about how all this happened, how the earth and life um, came into being, as it were, um, that might challenge that account. And so there's the question, okay, we have these two different accounts. How do they relate to each other? And there are many different um, ways to deal with that. On the one hand, some people uh, um, say we have to take it so literally. Um, and if it says in the Bible it was, I don't know, 6,000 years ago, whatever um, the claim then is, then this is the word of God, and hence this has to be absolute truth, and all other claims um, have to be somehow wrong. However, um, there are many uh, um, different ways to deal with this question. Actually, going back even further than Darwin, for instance, the um, great Islamic scholar um, Ibn Khaldun in his uh, Muqaddimah, the prolegon or introduction, um, said that probably in the beginning um, there were um, certain forms of minerals and then they developed into um, um, palms and then animals and then monkeys and then actually um, human beings. So this was in the 14th century, I believe. So there was a sense that... Um, there has been a change and a gradual change, which in no way um, contradicts uh, the fact that God created um, um, life. You're listening to Naked Reflections. 
And my guests this week are Charlotte Kensington, Tobias Muller and Alexander Massman. Of course, there are other ideas about how life originated. And here's Milton Wainwright of Sheffield University speaking on The Naked Scientists. Now, my view, um, the one I'm working on, is that life came from space, so-called panspermia. Now, panspermia means seeds everywhere. So the idea is the cosmos is full of life and it floats around or it arrives in meteorites. And when it hits a planet, life is um, delivered there. So it's opposite to the kind of general chemical theory, which most scientists believe in, the idea that life originated on Earth. So we're saying that life does not necessarily, it could have done, uh, that is, originate on Earth. We think life came in from space, and it continues to come in from space uh, as we speak. Uh, Alexander, any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's really fascinating to see how scientists are now coming up with more and more planets that could be candidates for a stage for life. So supposedly there are even millions of planets in the Milky Way that orbit their star, much like the Earth orbits the sun, etc. Um, so as a theologian, I have to say I'm neither for um, panspermia, the idea of life originating elsewhere, nor am I against it. It's a scientific question on which I have no special expertise. Um, so personally, I see life as God's creation, and we can describe that as a natural process. So the chemical compounds of life have to fall into place somewhere. And for me, it doesn't make a difference if they first did that here on Earth or elsewhere. So if we discover aliens um, in outer space, which we seem to think exists, that wouldn't affect your understanding of the divine? No, I don't think it would. So first of all, I think it's really... Uh, quite uh, fascinating to see how scientists make a case that there probably is life elsewhere in the universe. Um, and then you could extrapolate from that, well, um, if there is life, how likely is some sort of um, social society to develop, um, animal intelligence and those kinds of things? I'm not entirely sure um, how likely it would be, say, for something like religion to evolve elsewhere? Can we give an evolutionary account of religion? I think it's an interesting question whether religion is part of the evolutionary cycle. <laughs> Tobias? Yeah, certainly. I, I guess uh, kind of in the beginning of uh, people trying to understand religion, not from a theologically, but more from an anthropological perspective, actually, evolutionary theories were very strong. So the idea was, in the beginning, there was myth and mythology, and that then, um, or magic, and that gradually transformed to proper organized religion that rationalized, and eventually then, uh, during the Enlightenment, uh, science set in and kind of replaced religion. So these uh, revolutionary, uh, evolutionary accounts, sorry, <laughs> um, um, certainly um, do exist. At the same time, one can also conceptualize religion as dealing with transcendence, but transcendence not only in the sense of there being an entity uh, that uh, has new supernatural powers, but the things that are beyond that which is, is, which is directly graspable with our senses. And in that sense, we experience transcendences all the time. 
um, even the, even when we sleep actually can be conceptualized as a transcendence. We go into a, a space that we don't really cannot feel or can't really conceptualize. Or if we think about our ancestors, like somehow there is a certain transcendence that we are somehow connected with them. And that, of course, is a very important element of religion. There's one theory that says uh, religion is basically a chain of memory, like connecting to certain paths, to traditions, to spaces, to times, to narratives. And so in that sense, I would argue um, it is not unreasonably unreasonable to believe that wherever there is life and sociality, some form of religion or transcendence or dealing with transcendence might emerge. And I think transcendence is also part of the academic story, the search. When you discover something or uncover something, as if something changes, which is part of the religious story. I'm just wondering, Charlotte, whether in, in sort of uh, your studies, whether, whether you've had those moments, I'm sure you have, when it's like a eureka moment, but it's almost a, a religious a transform, transformative moment. I'm not sure I'd describe it as being a, a religious or a transformative moment, but there are, uh, so the fossils that I work on, so they are the, the oldest animals that we know of, and the way that they're preserved, particularly in Newfoundland in Canada, which is my main field area, they're preserved as almost snapshots of the seafloor that were buried under volcanic ash. So they lived in very, very dark um, oceans at the bottom of the seafloor, and then they were um, killed by a volcanic ash flow coming in and smothering them. And then this volcanic ash is, um, we think, quite important in preserving them, but it also weathers more easily than the surface on which the organisms were living. And so when you walk up to one of these surfaces, you see the ancient sea floor with all the fossils laid out in front of you. And it's one of the most spectacular things that I've ever seen. And then you, you get it on a sunny day and the light's just right. And um, that is that is almost spiritual. You're getting this really privileged, unique view into into a community that has been dead for you know 10 times as long as the dinosaurs. So you're part of that process, aren't you? You're, you're, you're engaging in it, not simply in an academic sense of the pursuit of knowledge, but there's something beyond that. Yeah, there's definitely a, a thrill to discovering. So whether it's discovering a new species or, or discovering a new fossil site. So you are very much working in the beginning of the evolutionary cycle, if it's fair to say, 650 million years ago? So the, not the beginning of the evolutionary cycle, but um, the start of when we have complex multicellular life. So there was um, approximately 3 billion years before that of purely microbial life. And this sort of has a bearing to what we think about um, life evolving on other planets. So it's comparatively simple to make a cell. So fat molecules, the way that they arrange themselves... Um, make a little ball and there have been a number of experiments the classic one being the milliuri experiment shove some lightning into what we think primordial atmospheres would be like and you get amino acids and all sorts of things it gets more difficult when you try and make um, a cell like a eukaryote cell which is not just a bag but it's a bag containing lots of other bags and um, the way that we think that that happened is that you have something like an amoeba so a fairly simple bag and then it starts to envelop other bags if you like and so you can see evidence of that in sort of the the double layered walls that you have of mitochondria and also in the genetics of mitochondria so that's the bit within our cell that generates the energy for us um the genetics of mitochondria are very similar to some um, bacteria that we have that still exist as bacteria and then when you start to become multicellular that's almost cooperation itself. So coming back to that idea of cells cooperating. So you can do much better when a load of cells come together. You can reach higher into the water column. 
um, to release your spores, your offspring. Um, but then at some point you become uh, obligatory multicellular. So we can't shed ourselves into a load of single cells and then come back together. But sponges still can. So there are a number of steps that take you from um, becoming so a simple bag of chemicals to being a complex multicellular being and then let alone consciousness and neurology and all the crazy stuff that goes on in, in our brains. On the balance of probability, you have life on other planets, whether or not that's intelligent life or life that is social or life that has neurological networks that are complex enough to allow us to be conscious and therefore to develop really complex concepts like religion or science. Um, I think that's there. There are so many steps that the probabilities just become vanishingly small. So, Alexander, where do we take that now? How much further have we got to go in the evolutionary cycle? Is it never ending? What might humans evolve to? Well, um, what humans are especially good at, it would be what one could perhaps call cultural evolution. Um, probably biological evolution continues with maybe people no longer having a wisdom tooth or those kinds of things. But that doesn't, uh, I don't find that particularly spectacular. Cultural evolution is really interesting, um, but those are never-ending possibilities. But I think what's important to reflect on also is the notion that evolution often carries with it as something um, either positive or it's something inevitable in, into a certain direction or there's a certain teleology to it. And um, I think a lot of the developments actually are not necessarily negative um, um, or positive in either way. And I think we the important question is also to think about how uh, processes that are more of a degeneration maybe or actually where something gets lost along the way, how do we conceptualize those? Um, and the second question, how do we conceptualize ruptures, revolutions, things that are um, unanticipated? And I think this is particularly important when we try to imagine maybe one of the most important evolutionary questions, if you want, uh, um, the question of climate change. Because um, Amitav Ghosh in his book, The Great Derangement, for instance, makes the point, the problem is that we cannot really fathom, we can't really imagine, we can't really think what climate change means in terms of the time spans. That's why I think it's really interesting what Charlotte is doing, actually like taking this deep time, these very, very long time frames into account to imagine that actually what might happen next, i.e. in the next 50 or 100 years, might be a quite radical rupture from what we've seen in the last 200, 300 or even 2000 years, actually. So the question for me is, are we maybe actually settled in a mode of evolutionary thinking that there will be only gradual change. And accordingly, our politics, our culture will also develop steps by step, bit by bit. Or actually, are we actually at a point where a radical change will happen rather sooner than later? And I think that is the case with climate change. But we are unable to really grasp it culturally, maybe also religiously, philosophically, certainly politically. So when with climate change particularly, we have... Um, examples of really dramatic climate change in in the rock record and the difficulty there is that as far as we can tell it's happening on a much slower time scale there are um, uncertainties with uh, geochronological techniques so dating the rocks but as far as we can tell it isn't happening 
in the rock record as fast as it is today. And so this gives us the idea of a perturbation. The question of um, punctuated equilibrium or gradualistic change or punctuated evolution has been a, a really long, long-running question in evolutionary theory. In order for ecosystems to respond to climate change as rapidly as kind of we would maybe want them to, to mitigate some of the problems that we as as a, a global society have induced, it would have to be a really, I think, a fortunate coincidence for some fundamental change in genetics to allow ecosystems and even just individual species to respond as quickly as we might want them to. Well, I think we have evolved to the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Charlotte Kensington, Tobias Muller and Alexander Massman. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.